Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Hey there, this is Arnie Chapman, founder of the Sports History Network and host of the Football History Do podcast. Now, Mark invited me to sort of moderate the discussion between him and Frank Redding to talk about their fandom of wrestling in the 1970s and 1980s. This is a different format than Mark normally has on his feed, but you may have heard this type of conversation, a little bit longer one, between Frank and Mark a few weeks ago covering their fandom for the rivalry between the Redskins and the Cowboys during the 70s and 80s. That was actually an episode over on my podcast, The Football History Dude, part of the Sports History Network. And speaking of the Sports History Network, to learn more about Mark's podcast, Yesterday's Sports, the one you're listening to now, and Frank's podcast, Ringside with Reading, you can head over to the website, that is sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. But enough of me talking, let's get right into the interview between Mark Mortier and Frank Redding covering their favorite wrestling moments from the 1970s and 1980s. Okay, because you had that article, you know, so that's what I remember listening to a little bit is when we recorded that your time from growing up in the 70s and wrestling and everything like that. So I that kind of was really more my introduction than anything, I will say. And we might as well get kind of right into it then. You know, let's go with you, Mark, first. You're so just a brief little recap. Like, how did you get into wrestling? You know, what 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 drew you into it? I actually got into wrestling through a magazine. Uh, in uh, school, one of the teachers, uh, a younger, he, he was a young, younger teacher. He was probably, uh, he was probably only around 30 years old, maybe not even. And he was a very big sports fan. So I just happened to be walking past his desk one day and I saw a wrestling magazine on his desk. And I really, up to that, this was probably around 1974, and up to that time, I really didn't know anything about pro wrestling. I had never watched it or anything. But uh, I just noticed the magazine that kind of sparked my interest. So I asked him, do you mind if I take a look at that? And he said, oh, he said, I'm done with it. You could take it home. So I took it home and started reading through it. And then uh, really uh, the first time I saw it on TV was on a uh, the UHF, UHF uh, channel. If, if you didn't grow up in the 70s, you probably don't know what UHF is. There was only like, you know, seven television stations at that time. And UHF was a Spanish, mostly a Spanish uh, station. And they called it uh, Lucha Libre. And then uh, that's really what what uh, got me into it was the, the magazine. So then that's uh, as they, the, the, the rest is history kind of moment type of deal. Or what's that guy's name? Paul Harvey. Now for the rest of the story after we talk to Frank. So what about you, Frank? Uh, how did you get into professional wrestling? In 1974, I was a mega football fan well turned around on the dial like mark mentioned 
here was uh, Channel 29 was All-Star Wrestling, and Channel 17 was Championship Wrestling. All-Star was shown at 1 o'clock Central Time, and uh, Championship was shown at 5 p.m. on Channel 17, and All-Star was 29. I was just searching through the channels, and guys were sunset flipping each other and jumping off the turnbuckle. And I, I actually thought it was comical watching this. Like, Oh, look at these guys flying around. And, oh, you know, and so then that piqued my interest. I, um, start watching the TV and, and see in those days it was set up. All the angles were done on television. So if you missed the television episode, you wouldn't know what was going on. Okay, now um, I start watching it, and Mark, Mark, one of the first matches I can remember, and that was early in 1975, is Tony Gurria and the Wolfman on Championship Wrestling, and Rocka was the guest referee in that. Then he, uh, then he started commentating with Vince McMahon, so I think that was his introduction back in at the time. And he refereed the match and disqualified the Wolfman for biting Tony Gurria. And, and, and he got up and he tore Rocka's T-shirt off. Rocka turned around and drop-kicked him. And then did a cartwheel. So that was around April 75, if I recall. And uh, then I started buying the magazines. And my dad took us to the Spectrum Mayor, we were in like the nosebleed section, probably like one of the last rows in the building. On August 30th of 75, and there was a battle royal. And the way the WWF was set up at that time was Bruno was the champion at the time. And the battle royal, whoever won the battle royal got to wrestle Bruno. So in the back of our mind, we knew... It wasn't going to be a good guy that won the Battle Royal. I was just telling Arnie earlier, the Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lonza, picked up Andre by one leg each and threw him over the top rope. Okay, and the, the winner of the Battle Royal ended up being George Steele, who hit under the canvas through most of the match. All of a sudden, there was only several people left in there, and a couple of people left were the tag team champions at the time, Tony Gurria and Dean Ho. And I'm trying to remember, one of them, I don't know if it was Ho or Gurria, went to dropkick Steele and missed him. And they went out, and then George Steele picked up the other guy and threw him over the top rope. So George Steele was the winner of the Battle Royal. And he wrestled Bruno later on in the evening. And Bruno, it was a disqualification, of course. Okay, because Bruno didn't lose his title till April 30th to 77, nearly two years later after Superstar beat him. Right. That was George the Animal Steel, right? From Arnie's the, section of the country, Michigan. That's right. He's Jim actually, Myers. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I believe he was a phys ed teacher. Yeah. Exactly. In Michigan, yep. Yes, that's correct. And and like I was telling Arnie when this wasn't recorded, if you lived out in the Midwest, you didn't get to see our wrestling because it was Northeast. Right. And the country was split into many a different territories at that time period. They had uh, AWA, American 
I think it was American Wrestling Association. Vern Gagne, yeah. Nick Bobwinkle yeah. were the big names there. All right. And yeah. then the, the southern part of the country had the NWA. Yeah. That was uh, Jack Briscoe, I think, was the champion. Harley Race. Terry Harley Funk. Race. They were NWA champions during that time period. That's right. So how long you... I want to say you both mentioned how, you know, in our pre-interview and as well as talking about now, how different regions would see only their type of things. But how long did it take before it was more national? Oh, probably, I guess not really till the 80s, right, Frank? Yeah, with the, uh, you know what, what I remember when it really went national was the early 80s with, the Superstation in Atlanta, Georgia. That's the first time I remember seeing Georgia Championship Wrestling. was on at like 6.05, if I remember correctly, on TBS. Okay, right. and um, that was, um, I'm going to say, 81 or so. And we got cable in this area. We were always behind on everything, but we got cable in the summer of 1981. So then you got to see that then at that time. I remember uh, probably in the late 70s, early 80s, they had the NWA wrestling on, again, it was the UHF channel, channel 47. And then shortly after that is when they started to televise, uh, like you said, from Atlanta, Georgia on Saturdays. And at that time, I think that's when Bob Backlund was the champion. In the um, Bob Backlund was our champion here from right, February twentieth of seventy eight to December twenty sixth of eighty three. Okay, but in between that time, okay, from November the thirtieth of seventy nine to December the sixth of seventy nine, Backlund went to Japan and lost to Antonio Inoki for a week. Okay, but that was never credited that that was never looked officially in this country as a title change but that actually changed over but it was never recognized here in the states it was like a little thing that occurred off the record i guess you could say right well i guess uh I'll, there was a lot of uh fans for bob Becklin, but i really i was a bruno sammartino fan and then uh after that, he, he gave up the title to uh, superstar Billy Graham. And I, I think they should have let Graham keep it longer than they did because uh, my just my own opinion, I thought back when he was a very good uh, amateur wrestler and he, he knew, he, knew uh, he, had, he had a lot of moves, but he was a very bland personality. Yeah. yeah, he was a 1971 NCAA champion. He was an outstanding technician, but yeah. his personality wasn't exactly uh, cut out for professional wrestling. No, so that's what led me more to watching. I started watching more of the NWA, and then, uh, you know, Ric Flair came in and Dusty Rhodes and... It was a lot more, it seemed like a lot more excitement, you know. Yeah, Dusty, I, 
I've seen Bob Backlund many, many a times at the Spectrum. Okay, and see, see, I'm, I'm, I remember Bruno, but Bruno, by the time I was really becoming, well, even in 1974, Bruno was going towards the end of his career by then. Like I say, he was champion from December 10th of 73 to April 30th of 77 when Superstar beat him. So that was his second reign. Right. First he one was, was in his 19... 40s by then. Yes. The first, his first uh, was 1963, I think, right? May 17th, 63, yes. When he first won the title. Yeah, he beat Buddy yeah. Rogers in 63 seconds in the guard, and then he had that championship till January the 18th of 71 when Koloff beat him. Ivan Koloff. Yeah, that was, there. that was his, and he was actually a Canadian. Right. The Russian bear. He had that deep that deep voice. Oh, what, what a gentleman, Mark. I met him about 10, I met him in 2011. Oh, he he was a very gentlemanly guy. I enjoyed meeting him. He was he was great. I I actually know I know a guy who wrestled uh, Ivan Koloff, but Ivan Koloff was you know pretty old by then. But he showed me the pictures of him wrestling Ivan Koloff, and uh, I, I was amazed that Ivan Koloff was still wrestling. He was. Probably in his fifties, and he was uh -huh. still wrestling. <laughs> okay, well, what a gentleman, was, though. Yeah, yeah, I saw him in an interview, and he's—it's funny that uh, you know it goes to show you what good actors they are because everyone really believed that he was from Russia. Well, that's the whole thing. You got to take it as—it's you know what? It's—I call it—it's almost like watching a show. You got to take it for what it is, but. Keep this in mind, okay? You're letting other people do things to you, throw you around. You land improperly. You could be an invalid, just like what happened with Bruno with Stan Hansen. That's Broke right. his neck, and he became, he just missed by a millimeter away. Okay, he was very fortunate because it could have been, it could have been worse. Yep. You're right. Go ahead, Arnie. Yeah. Ask a question. I was, <laughs> was going to say, you guys, you guys bringing up a good point. One of the ones I wanted to kind of get into is so, you know, growing up when I was younger, it, it probably, it, the, we'll call it the Santa Claus moment. So you, you have, I, I believed wrestling was real. You know, I, I shouldn't say that because it's real. Like you said, the talent that's there, the, the physical toll that it takes on the body and everything is there that they have to go through. But it's, uh, for lack of a better term, scripted. Uh, do you, Either one of you kind of had that moment where you're like realized where you thought it was non-scripted, it was for real, but then all of a sudden you go, "Whoa, okay, this is my Santa Claus moment." We'll call it for wrestling. Well, I I go back to that incident that Frank was just talking about. Um, I didn't know, you know, did I, it was a question? Did Bruno San Martino really break his neck, or are they just faking this? But then, you know, and and they didn't want to, um, you know, pro wrestling at that time didn't want to let out any secrets. You know, nothing, everything was kept secret. So the way they played it was that uh, Stan Hansen broke his neck using 
a, a move called the lariat, where basically he would throw his opponent off the ropes, and when the guy came back to him, he would just give him a clothesline. So that's the way they spun it, that the lariat is what broke San Martino's neck. So then I was wondering, you know, uh, I wonder if he really did break his neck or if they're just they're just playing this up. But then found out years later that uh, he actually did break his neck, but not for the reason they said. Not not intentionally. That was an accident right. that happened when he slammed him but on his head, didn't slammed, turn right? him over properly. That that's what had. That was a terrible, nearly tragic accident that occurred. It wasn't in. The act. It wasn't in the script, if you will. But like Mark was saying earlier, see, in those days, Arnie, it was a secret that this isn't a legitimate sporting event, but the guys were under oath almost, I guess you could say. It was an unwritten rule. You didn't come out and say it wasn't legitimate. To them, to, them, to the public, they were putting it off like this is a legitimate. You know what I, I used to get suspicious about when I was a kid when – how come they only seem to bleed in their forehead, I said. I thought that was what was suspicious to me. These guys don't seem to get cut anywhere else but there. So, you know, I got going to the – you wouldn't see that normally on television. You wouldn't see any Keller, as they called it, okay, uh, blading, as we later knew it to be. But you, when you went to the bigger arenas, you would see that, like, in the title matches. It was thrill for the – for the crowd to see that. Okay. Well, look, the guy's bleeding. This is the, the, it was a secret within the industry. You don't talk about it, but now, now everybody knows it's not legitimate. It's, it's, it's not, a, it's not a secret anymore. Like it was in those days, they called it kayfabe. Yeah. I mean, there was like that too. I had some of those moments where, they would have, I don't know, we talked about The Undertaker in the pre-interview, but they'd have different uh, wrestlers, and granted, this is in more probably the 90s, where it seemed like they would have uh, career-ending injuries, and then they'd be back the next week, like numerous times over and over and over. So it's like, hey, what's going on here? Uh, speaking of that, so I never actually was at any events myself, and Frank alluded to one of them that he was at. Uh, Mark, let's go with you first, and then we'll go to Frank. What about any memorable events that you've been to live? Right. So uh, my friend, uh, he did some wrestling photography, and he got to know a lot of the wrestlers personally. So he would get uh, tickets from time to time, and he asked me, and I was only about 15 at the time, he said, do you want to go to Madison Square Garden? to watch the wrestling. Bruno Sammartino is going to be wrestling Ken Patera. Superstar Billy Graham's going to be there. Ivan Putschke, all the big stars. I said, well, I don't know how much, you know, I'm only 15, so I don't have any money. I asked him how much this is going to cost. This is a big event. He said, oh, they're not going to cost you anything. I got, I got free tickets. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely want to go. And next thing I know, I'm sitting in the front row at Madison Square Garden watching Bruno Sammartino wrestle Ken Patera. And I still remember to this day, uh, it's like it just happened yesterday. Ivan Pushki, I believe, wrestled uh, superstar Billy Graham. 
And, uh, you know, these were the big name rest of George the Animal. George the Animal Steel was there. All the big names. And I, I was there in the front row, and I couldn't believe it. I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> and uh, so I went. That was my main. Yeah, that was my main event. So, Mark, what's the difference between now? Granted, so I, like I said, I haven't been to a wrestling event, but as far as going to a baseball event, basketball, football, especially mostly football for me, like there's that different type of energy. Is it the same thing in a wrestling event, especially being in the first row? Oh yeah, yeah. The the fans really get into it. I mean, uh, if you, the wrestling fans, uh, there's a lot of at that time. There was a lot of. Uh, elderly women that were into wrestling, like grandmothers, <laughs> and that they would hit the, you know, the the bad guy would fall out of the ring, and they'd hit him over the head with a pocketbook, and oh, they really got into it. The fans took it really very seriously, and those elderly grandmothers, they Mrs. Krieger, Mark, she was the one in the garden. She was used to be a front row and. Would hit guys right. with her she purse. Was always there. Yep, she was always there. She was a regular. And <laughs> yep, she would hit him, hit him over the head with the purse. That's funny. It's almost like more of an intimate type of uh, fan to sport relationship than you can get in other sports because it's more maybe accepted or expected versus some of the other sports, I suppose. Oh, well, it's really funny. Uh, about that event I was at is uh, as Ivan Putschke and superstar Billy Graham are wrestling. Uh, Billy Graham got knocked out of the ring, and I'm there in the front row, so he's like maybe 10, 15 feet away from where I'm sitting. And I'm yelling at him, Get up, you bum, get up, you bum. And then I found out later, I found out later, he's the one that got us the tickets. Because my friend knew him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. How, like I said, different type of, of a relationship—the fan versus the the, uh, the the sport and everything. Frank, you kind of alluded to a event earlier, but what's like? What's your most memorable live event that you've ever been to? Well, well just a couple of things I wanted. Uh, Mark, I, I just wonder if that. Do you think that Mrs. Krieger was on the payroll, possibly? <laughs> she could have been like a heckler in yeah. the crowd, maybe you know. It and, seemed like it seemed like she was always there every week. Yeah, and, and, and you, you know, it's a situation too. You know, in these sporting events, if you're not in on it, the police right. will escort you out. You know, you're, right. you're a disturbance to the wrestlers. You know, you know, I mean, like any kind of sporting event, anybody unwanted comes in there. The police will escort them out, maybe even arrest you, no less. Yeah, so it seemed like uh, she probably was in on the action, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and another thing I want to add before I get into my is, see, Arnie, the WWF at that time, too, was set up as basically a baby face, which means a good guy would be carrying the title, where you had guys in between that were like transitional champions, like Ivan Koloff, Stan Stasiak. They had the belt. Ivan Koloff had the belt for about three weeks, and Stasiak had it for nine days, just to switch over from Pedro, from Bruno to Pedro, back to Bruno, 
then Backlund came in later. So that it, it was good guy versus bad guy there. That's the way that federation was set. That's that's the way it was set up. And see myself, I never. I was in the Madison Square Garden one time. Okay, the Spectrum was my place. I was in the Spectrum probably. I've seen wrestling there probably about fifteen times or so. Many many times. I was in the Garden. Never forget the Garden show I went to. It was the only one. February nineteenth of seventy nine. It was Bruno or. Excuse me, Bruno was stuck in Pittsburgh in a snowstorm. That was—I remember going to the uh, garden that night on the train, me and my dad. And if you remember too, going back farther, you couldn't get into Madison Square Garden if you were under like 14 years old, if I remember. Okay, you had to be like 14 years old and over to get, and they wouldn't admit any children in there, anybody under a teenager couldn't get in the place so i was 12 years old at the time and we were in the snow i remember going on the train and getting the train stopping a few times because of the bad weather so the main event that night was backland against um greg valentine and it went the whole time limit valentine got backland in the figure four as the bell rang and he wouldn't let him out so arnold scullin came in with the title belt and whacked greg valentine over the head <laughs> that broke the hold and then that's what they did in those days okay that they'd had one match it was drawing big then they had another bigger match maybe a cage match or a texas death match something that would decide a winner and it's a good guy territory a good guy was carrying the belt most of the time but well, um frank i just wanted to ask you uh you were mentioning how it was always, you know, the good guy versus the bad guy, but there, there, on very rare occasions, and you know this one, uh, Bruno Sammartino wrestled Pedro Morales. I think that was at Shea Stadium, right? September 30th, 72 was the first show down at Shea, yeah, and, and it was a 75-minute curfew draw with uh, – and both of them were were he uh, baby faces rather. They were both loved by the fans. So that that was that was a rarity though. That that was once once in a lifetime in in the WWF. Right. Do you know what led up to the what, why they uh, had those two facing each other? Well, they had a tag team, if I recall, and, and they got, like, into a tiff, right? That was the way the angle was set up, if I remember correctly. Oh. But they didn't they didn't really turn on each other. Well, they hugged and, you know, there wasn't no animosity at the end of that match. It was a very clean match for the most part, you know, no dirty tactics or anything because both of them were going to be good guys anyway. And they were both good guys for their whole careers. And they went 75 minutes. Yes. Wow. That's a and, long and time. We talked about the, uh, the showdowns at Shea. They were pre WrestleMania. These, these were super cards for that time. That was the first one. And Bruno headlined all these cards. He was the main event and he was only champion at one of the three of them. Stan Hansen, right? Uh, that was the second one, June the 25th, 76. That was the Ali Inoki fight. 
Oh, I didn't realize that was on the same cart. So, well, that was in, of course, Ali and Inoki was in Japan and Tokyo, but that was on the oh, same uh, card. Chuck okay, Webner, that was Chuck Webner fought Andre on that card. Andre. Right. And on my podcast, I mentioned that in, in the boxer versus wrestler episodes. And I did some research and found out that actually became, that was actually a work match. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, then, then you yeah. had the number three with Bruno and Larry Zabisco in the cage, the third uh, showdown that chase. So these these are precursors, I guess you could say, especially the last one on, on August 9th of 80 was a precursor to the uh, later WrestleMania. So Bruno, Bruno was... Uh a major, I mean, if it wasn't for Bruno, wrestling might not be, might not have become what it, what it became. And especially here in the Northeast. Right. Bruno was the king. Yeah. He was the main draw. Bruno was loved by the fans. Well, so you know what Pedro Morales was to a lesser extent, I would say, but Bruno was the, Bruno was the king of this area for nearly from the sixties into the seventies, uh, he he was the he was the man main guy here. All through the sixties and the seventies, yep. That's right. Bruno was the main the main man. Bruno was the big draw here. He was popular and loved by millions and millions of people. And then after uh, Backlund came uh, Hulk Hogan, right? The Iron Sheik beat Backlund December 26, 83. And that was, again, like I talked about earlier, transitional champion. Hogan defeated him January the 23rd, 84. And a whole new era began with that. And Rowdy Rowdy Piper came in. <laughs> and then it became... <laughs> That, then they had their first WrestleMania, right? WrestleMania was March 31st, 85. Yep. 1985. Mm -hmm. Rowdy Roddy Piper. And uh, who was his partner? Or Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff. Yeah, against uh, T and uh, Hulk Hogan. Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that was the main event at the first um, WrestleMania, yeah. And again, Madison Square Garden. See, Madison Square Garden was really the headquarters. That was the main arena at in this part of the country. You, usually the titles changed in Madison Square Garden for the most part, with the exception of, uh, well, a couple of them I could think of that didn't happen there. Bruno didn't want to lose the title in the garden. That's why he lost it in Baltimore to uh, Superstar Graham. And... Uh, Pedro um, lost to um, Stan Stasiak in Philadelphia. But for the most part, the garden is where the main things happened. Right. That's true. Right. And that was their, that was really their centerpiece of the WWF, WWF, which in March of 79 dropped the one W for wide on there. And if anything big was going to happen with that title, it was usually happened in Madison Square Garden. 
So you guys both mentioned how the first WrestleMania, it sounds like I was eight days old when that one, I was barely out of the hospital. Actually, no, I think <laughs> I might have still been in the hospital because I had a case of jaundice. I know I, I know I was in there a little longer than normal, but I don't, know, I don't know when I actually released. So let's just say that was the day I released. And you mentioned Hogan in there, of course. That's getting into more my territory than as he was transitioning Frank and I spoke about this. Um, you know, I, I was big in, you know, everybody liked Hogan when he was, you know, the the America's hero or whatever his his name was. But then getting into like the WCW and stuff. But with that being said, you know, if, if I had to pick maybe my favorite wrestler of my time, I'd have to choose either between Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Rock, which, you know, two of the more popular during my time. How about you, Mark? Who was your favorite if you had to pick one wrestler to stick with as far as your favorite wrestler of your time well i'd have to pick bruno but um if i was gonna pick uh my favorite my favorite bad guy boy that'd be a tough i guess i'd have to go with ken patera because of his uh his lifting his uh weightlifting days ken patera and bruno sammartino and uh, they just happened to wrestle each other the night there that I was there. Hey, not bad. How about you, Frank? So let's go there. Your favorite good guy and your favorite heel. I would agree. I'm I'm with uh, Mark on the Ken Patera. I'm a big Ken Patera fan too. And Ken Patera was an authentic, real weightlifter and an Olympic. Uh, lifter and he was in the was the mark in the 72 olympics right 1972 he didn't do well in those olympics but uh he won numerous national national titles he i think he placed second in the world championships uh, i think in 1971 and he became the first american the first american weightlifter to clean and jerk over 500 pounds. Yeah, and I think, you know what, with Bruno, I think he and Bruno had a mutual admiration society, I guess you could call it. They were both strong guys, uh, weight weightlifters, so there was much in common there. Uh, so, yeah, Ken Batera would be my guy. And, um, and I would say, um, I know you don't care for Backlund too much, but Backlund was really my champion during the time when I was really following it closely in the late seventies, early eighties, he was a, um, technical wizard. I mean, the guy, the guy, you know what? One of the greatest trained athletes. I mean, this guy was in great condition to all oh, man. I mean, he, he was a phenom when it came to, uh, conditioning. That was his whole forte. But when it came to interviews, very bland, very uh, monotone. I mean, that wasn't his strong point, given the interview. But his strong point was wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. That was his thing. Well, so well, he was uh, not like Macho Man. <laughs> oh no, no, not even close. No, a lot of the a lot of the pro wrestlers didn't really uh, have an amateur background, but uh, Backlund was one that definitely. Uh, had an uh, amateur background, and he had, like Frank said, he had a lot of different moves, and you could tell the guys that didn't really have an amateur background because they really didn't know 
uh, hardly any moves. They just did a lot of punching and <laughs> stomping. But back when, uh, uh, even though he had a bland personality, he he definitely had uh, he had some good moves. Yeah, yeah, and and in a, in a legitimate wrestling match, if it was on the level, he could out wrestle most guys. And and you know, see, our territory, Arnie, was set up where back uh, Bruno rather and Pedro weren't what you would call the wrestler's wrestler. They weren't a guy, guys that showed a lot of technical moves. Not saying that they couldn't wrestle, but their whole style was pretty much brute force, punching and kicking for the most part. Given the, given it to the villain, more or less. So that that was the whole style of them. But Backlund was a Backlund was a different for that time period too. Another guy that had some good moves was. Mil Mascaris. But but nobody yeah. liked him, uh, Mark, because he wouldn't sell for anybody. He he had a reputation for that. He wouldn't make anybody look good. In fact, when he wrestled Superstar in the garden twice, he wouldn't he wouldn't sell for Superstar who was the champion. So he I wasn't gonna carry that. no title in here. And he was uh-huh. uh, he walked on water in Mexico. And he was a legendary figure. He was in movies and everything. He was very athletic. Oh yeah, one of the one of the first really uh, athletic wrestlers that would jump off count, the top. At least you count Rocca in there. I mean, who predates him? I mean, Rocca was a high flying kind of guy That's too, right. barefoot. Fifties and sixties, he was the main guy. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Mascaris wrestled under a mask. And um, like I say, he was a legendary figure in uh, Mexico. Well, well, he he was like Antonio Inoki in Japan, like Hogan here years later. I mean, Hogan's mainstream. You said he was one of the more I get. So we we talked about I forgot the gentleman's name there. That was kind of one of the first flyers. I I think of to my days like Rey Mysterio Jr. Now was. What was the style of wrestling back during during this time frame, the seventies and the eighties? It, it depended on the territory you were looking at. Our, our WWF here, for the most part, was not what you would call a technical kind of. Uh, you had Bruno and Pedro at the champions. Who not? I'm not saying they couldn't wrestle, but that wasn't their forte. Move for move being a technician, okay, where Backlund came along and he was more of a technical wrestler, but he didn't sell. The fans weren't really behind him as much as they were behind Bruno and Pedro. Bruno and Pedro had big, big followings, especially Bruno. Well, and and see, this is a time period too. You got to remember, Arnie, these guys were not mainstream figures like they are today. Now people know these guys are. Okay, but the main public, they might not know some of these guys who they are, unless they were wrestling fans. Well, then I think the other two federations were probably a little more uh, technical, uh, with uh, probably more guys that had an amateur background. I think Ric Flair had an amateur background, right? 
uh, what, what Vern Gagne was a nineteen forty-eight uh, Olympic alternate. So he he had a real good um, and Lou says if you know anything about him, I mean this guy was a shooter that could break your arm or leg just getting you in a hold. I mean this guy was no joke and people respected him. And he was he was a well known shooter and hooker, which means that you could shoot. It means you could really wrestle and hook. You could break somebody down if you had to. And that's the kind of guys that the that they wanted holding the belt because if anybody tried to double cross, they could protect it. Yeah. Okay. You just said, I got to, I got to, you said they want a hole in the belt. What do you, what are you saying by that? Well, if anybody tried to pull any games on them and maybe try to go off the script and take the belt away from it, from a guy like Lou says, I might get injured trying to do that because he ain't going to let it go. And he was so tough and so <laughs> respected by everybody. And they knew, they knew about him behind the scenes that he was no joke and he was a legitimate tough guy. Were there many instances that sometime, maybe if even if it was later on, became public, where that did occur behind the scenes, where it was supposed to go one way and then, oh, you know, I like can, you said, I'll, go ahead, Mark. You sounds like I you have think, one. I can think of an incident. Uh, this wrestler's name, he mainly wrestled in the Midwest. He played for the Green Bay Packers during the 1950s and then became a pro wrestler. Uh, I think his last name was Athlas, Dick Athlas. Dick the Bruiser was his wrestling name. And he mainly wrestled in the Midwest, but uh, occasionally he would come to the Northeast. He wrestled in Madison Square Garden. I believe he was wrestling Antonino Rocco, who Frank mentioned. And um, Dick the Bruiser uh, did not really go along with the script very well. Uh, he was a rough guy, played for the Packers, like I said. And he actually um, started a full-scale riot at Madison Square Garden. And he was suspended. For, he was never allowed to wrestle. In the Northeast again, is uh, they su just uh, basically suspended him from wrestling on the Northeast, and so um, mainly all of his wrestling was done in the Midwest because he because of this riot that he he created at Madison Square Garden where he was throwing police officers out of the ring and. I mean, this was real, you know. He, that was he, a real fiasco, <laughs> that thing you're talking about. November the 19th of 57, that happens. A tag team match where Bruiser and the, or, uh, Rocca were involved in that. Oh, yeah. yeah that was, chairs were flying all over the place. That was a real fiasco. But, yeah, Bruiser got, uh, got banned, I believe, from the state of New York for life. And them guys yeah. got fined for that. Oh, yeah, that, that was that that was something that went off of uh, of off the script. But but yeah, that that was a that was an exception to the rule too, though. So uh, he he was asking, uh, Arnie was asking. So maybe you know, Frank. That's one incident I know of. Do you know of any other incidents where someone did not go along with the script? Mm. I can't think of any off the top of my head uh, just to, just here talking about well, this. 
you know, that's a reason that right there is a reason why you would not want to go off the script because, like you say, he got banned from, you know, so he lost a lot of money, I'm sure, in his career because he was banned from wrestling on the Northeast. Yeah, yeah, the state of New York. He was never allowed to wrestle there again. All them guys got fined for that too. That that was a that went off kayfabe and the whole script. So that that was something that. But the fans got involved in that. It was a big riot. And and see, some of the fans in those days, even into the seventies and into the eighties, were much more naive too. They used to think this stuff was real. People would get behind these guys. Oh, look at what he's doing to our hero. There was incidents, guys talked about that, where they would come out, these wrestlers that were their heels or villains, their car would be busted up. They have Their windows would be broke. Their tires would be flat. And, oh, this guy beat up our hero. Now we're going to get even with him. That's his car right there. We're going to damage his car. So some of these heels might have been in danger because the people were that passionate about this stuff. But it's all a big show. But some people really got into it and they thought it was legit. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to one of the questions I asked earlier about, you know, the moment where you realize that it's not legit. I mean, again, it's very talented, highly athletic individuals that put their bodies on the line and everything. But there's that story. And I was just always wondering, you know, maybe there's plenty of instances where behind the scenes, like you said, Frank, earlier that they, the NFL, I'm so used to talking, the wrestling, they would try to keep it kind of under wraps where maybe it did go the wrong way. The guy gets fined or gets, um, you know, his hand slapped for something, but it turns out it was actually the better move. The fans actually wished it would have went that way and it turned to be positive for the league or something like that. I, I don't know. You know, maybe there's some of those that went on. Um, you know, going back to my time with wrestling, we kind of alluded to this earlier with Stone Cold, Steve Austin, maybe and The Rock were my my two favorite, I suppose you could say. Uh, I just remember the Stone Cold Stunner as the finishing move and the people's elbow. What about you, you both gentlemen? Frank, who is, what was your favorite finisher move, I guess you could say? Well, um, Backlund had the atomic knee drop. Later, he had the roll up and he had the cross-faced chicken wing. They were his ending moves. Now, Hogan had that leg, leg drop. Okay, so these guys all had a signature. The Iron Sheik had the camel clutch. Okay, these guys all had some kind of... Stan Stasiak, Mark, there's one for you. Remember the heart punch? Oh, yeah, the heart punch. <laughs> he, he'd lift the guy's arm up like this. Bang! Right in the heart, and the guy would... <laughs> fall down like he was dead so these guys were that's what they were doing they were selling you know it was funny because you know um some of these guys other guys would do that hold and say hey how come the guy i remember with the undertaker when he he had that tombstone remember that or any year and you remember the undertaker then other guys would do that move and nothing happened to the guy it's like hey how come when the undertaker does that the guy gets end up getting pinned because that was his signature move so these guys all had a what you would call a signature brett hart had the uh what do you could a sharpshooter that was his finishing move like i said the iron sheik with the camel clutch that's a, he got backland and that backland didn't even submit arnold scullin threw in the towel to end that match so that actually didn't end by a submission arnold scullin stopped the match and then when backland came back 
in 19, well, he came back in 92 as a good guy for a couple years, wasn't getting over it, and he decided to turn heel, and they made that into an angle, and he went after Scullin and said, you ruined my career, you ended that match, shame on you, you know, Backlund went off the deep end and start going after everybody, <laughs> Yeah, as you started mentioning some of those, a lot of them were, like you said, even in my territory, my time frame of watching. And I, I can remember, uh, so for instance, we'll go back to, like you said, The Undertaker. He'd do the tombstone where it's like, this guy should have a broken neck. And then the next moment, something simple and the guy's on the floor. is like, what's going on here? But uh, how about you, Mark? Any kind of memorable finisher signature moves? Yes, I like the figure four leg lock. Greg the Hammer Valentine. Use the figure four leg lock, which uh, Frank alluded to earlier. He had uh, Bob Backlund in the figure four leg lock. Then uh, the guy I mentioned before, a Mexican wrestler, Mel Mascaris, he was really one of the first guys that would jump off the top rope, one of the first really uh, very athletic wrestlers. He would just dump, jump off that top rope like it was nothing. And then uh, later, several years later, another guy that did that was uh, the Superfly, Jimmy Snuka. So uh, I would have to say my favorite was, the favorite finishing move was the figure four leg lock. And then there was a few guys that would use uh, the claw. Baron Von Roschke, you remember him, Frank? You would use the claw move. Black, the blackjack shoot, you use that instead yep, of Killer used, Kowalski. Yeah, there was quite a few guys that used the claw move. Well, well I'm going to add to this too, Mark. Well, talking about our guy, Ken Patera. Remember the swinging neck breaker? Oh, yeah. Remember when How he broke Billy White Wolf's neck? Right. That was all part of the act. You know, Billy White Wolf's real name was Adnan El Casey. He was from Iraq. Okay, and, and Patera broke his neck. Well, that was what the story was. And he ended up uh, he ended up being with Patera years later in the AWA. He he became didn't he become a, a manager later? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. he was getting. I think when uh, he wrestled Patera, from what I understand, he was kind of getting up in age and just didn't didn't feel like he could do it anymore. That was his and way so out. They, and then we go back yeah. to, you know what, going back to 1979, but Valentine, remember when Valentine broke Strongbow's leg? Oh, yeah, Chief Jack Strongbow. And that was right on television. That happened. Then Strongbow came back shortly thereafter. I said, like, this guy had a broken leg, and here he is back so fast. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, but um, but we were naive in those days. You know, we were little kids. And, um, right. I was thinking, like, wow, this guy pretty good. But but the Bruno one that we talked about, that was legit. That wasn't no yeah. fake thing. But that was an accident that happened. That wasn't part of the storyline that, that was in the match. That was an accident, terrible accident. Yeah, the accident that I can recall is, um, I don't know if you guys were really into wrestling at the time, but Owen Hart, when he fell from the, the rafters, I heard about it. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't really watching wrestling at that time, but I remember hearing uh, something about that. May twenty third, ninety nine, at the Kemper Arena. That oh, yeah. happened. You have all the dates. 
He, he remembers all the dates. Yelma, no, a Frank out in the useless yeah. information. <laughs> yeah, he's a walking um, whatever it would be on this day.com type of guy too. That we talked about that in our football shows before, but yeah, I remember. I just remember Jr. Jim Ross, and it was like you could tell it was serious. Like even though most of their time they would have all these different, you know, this guy's the Undertaker killed the guy and he took him away, but. This was a definitely they cut away to, and then they still had, if I recall, the blood that was still on the the mat that they couldn't clean off. And his brother um, it escapes me. Uh, was it Bret Hart? Was his Bret brother's Hart. name? Yeah, Bret Hart yeah, wasn't he, in the WWF when that happened either. Okay, yeah, I I just remember he had the shades and everything. So so he would not have had a match at that time. No, he wasn't even in that federation when that happened. He had had a full now. Okay. With- with McMahon by then and uh but that was a tragedy too and and he was disguised in that match he was disguised as a, he was a blue blazer character years before that and that's what he was in that match too and supposedly what I understand about that he didn't want to do that that was a tragic accident that occurred terrible and did he actually die oh yeah he died Oh, he was wow. only 33 oh. or so, yeah. 33, oh. 34 young. Yeah, that was that was terrible. Oh. Yeah, not to I don't want to end it on a bad note. So let's let's turn this ship around as we say. I mean, if you want, we'll get in we can do you have any other open discussion moments before we get into a little game that I want to play? You have anything, Frank? Yeah, uh well, um, you know, Going back to our time with the WWF, later WWF, the only titles you really had here was the championship, which was held by Bruno for a long time. Then you had the tag team titles, which for the most part were changed on television. Mostly, okay, there's, I can remember a couple like at the Spectrum or the Garden, but for that decade, for the most part, they were happening on Hamburg, PA, All-Star, or Philadelphia Championship Wrestling. Then Championship later went to Allentown. So for the most part, the titles were changing on television with the tag team. Then in 1979, they started the Intercontinental title, which Patterson... Patera had that and Pedro and, you know, Pedro Morales, you know, Mark is the first guy to hold three titles. He had the WWF championship. He had the tag team title with Backland on the showdown at Shea on August 9th, 1980. They beat the Samoans and they, they didn't keep that because Backlund was the champion. Then he was the intercontinental title too. So he was the first guy to win them three titles. The first guy to do that. that. Yeah. Did not know that. Any other memorable moments that you have, Mark, that you wanted to bring up? Well, I forgot uh, when you first asked me about um, how I first got interested in it. Um. I remember uh, Saturday night at midnight on Channel 9, I believe, WOR, they had a federation, a short-lived federation. Do you remember this federation, Frank? Um, I believe it was called the IWA, and that's where I first saw Mil Mascaris. They had uh, Bulldog Brower, 
Yeah, Koloff was there. Yeah, um, Eric the Red, okay. Uh, yes, Eric the Tex Red. McKenzie, yeah, I remember. I think Ernie Ladd was there for a little bit. If I remember Ernie correctly, Ladd. wasn't that out of, that was out of like Buffalo, I think. I don't even remember what's where it was out of, but I was sure lived. It only lasted about a year, I would say. Yeah, and um, and you know what? Um, yeah, there were some big names in that, but we seen that Channel Nine was telecasting that briefly in in the Mercer County Trenton area, but yeah, it was short lived too. Yes, and uh, yeah, I think they did have a uh, Ernie Ernie Ladd who uh, was uh, probably I would say probably. I can't think of anyone else that was better. That was a better football player that later became a. He was uh, all pro AFL. You know, back to the AFL days, mm-hmm. played with the San Diego Chargers and the Kansas City Chiefs, and he was a all pro defensive. I think he played defensive end. Number ninety nine. Sure, sure. The big cat. He was a giant. He was. He was a giant. Well, well one wrestler giant. I can think of that actually is a Hall of Fame football player. How about Bronco Nagurski? He was an NWA That's champion, right. right? That's right. I forgot about Bronco and he was a, He's a Hall of Famer in pro football, too, if, correct? Yes, he is. Yeah. Yep, a, that was the name I was going to bring up because of, you know, being that my initial show is football history and he came out of retirement. Well, yeah, from, from football, he was already what multiple champion in wrestling after the, during the world war two era to be the, to win the, help win the championship monsters of the midway back in uh 46, 45, something like that for the bears. Yeah. He was, his football career was over by then. Right. Yeah, I think he had been retired for three, four years, and then yeah, back. it was quite some time. Whatever it was, he was he was an older guy, and then he was a fullback. Well, back then the fullback role meant something different, but yeah, he ended up carrying them the last two games to win the championship. Yeah, well, football guys are really set up for wrestling for the most part too. I mean, they got the size; they're known; they're athletes. So there, there were several football players that went into professional wrestling but like mark said ernie cat lad was one of the well-known guys he was a legitimate athlete and he was all around pretty decent guy too from my understand about him and before we get in the game we got to give one shout out to uh oz davis truly the goats who is going to be uh, nominated for the sports podcast awards he had an episode one of his first ones was on king kong angelo is it angelo mosca i believe mosca, it was yeah, yeah. Canadian. He played in the Canadian Football League. Yeah, he wrestled in our area, too, in the early 80s. He had several matches with Backlund. Then he had a match with Joe Cap. Huh! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they had a long-time rivalry going back to the CFL, I believe, right? Yeah, that's a that's a whole other story. <laughs> but they were about 80 years old. They had <laughs> some kind of reunion, and they got into <laughs> They were swinging at each other. They were yeah. 80 years old. Yeah, bad, bad still, blood. There was still bad blood. I think Moscow <laughs> was in much worse shape. Wasn't Moscow in a wheelchair by yeah. then, Mark? I know he had a cane. Uh-huh. He, he, I know he had a cane because he was swinging the cane at Joe Cap. Yeah, he was in a lot worse condition than Cap was. Yeah. 
But that's a whole other story. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and again, I'll have to give that plug for Oz Davis, but if you want to learn more about it, you can go to Truly the Goats. I can't remember if it's the first or second. It's it's either the second or third. It's a two-part episode, but he gets into that that cap and Mosca uh, scuttlebutt, we'll call it, yep. at, the, at the award show. Yeah, well, uh, somebody, um, somebody did a show on here. Uh, maybe it was that one you're talking about, Arnie. It was the greatest one of the greatest heels of all time angela mosca is that the one i've seen that on there i didn't listen to the whole thing though right that, that's probably the one you're talking about right i think so um it's uh it's it's actually be- the reason why he calls him truly the goat as in one of the greatest of all times is because he dominated two different sports as in re- professional wrestling and the canadian football league so it's a very good listen it's uh, well-produced. Again, I'm trying to give a plug here to Oz because he does so much for the network for us and everything. Yeah, I just want to say publicly to him, congratulations on the award, yeah. too. Absolutely. Well-deserved. <laughs> All right, so speaking of awards, I mean, you know, we can't have an award without a game. I have a little uh, quarter right here. I don't know if both of you can see. It's it's legitimate. It's, it's a two-sided quarter, so... We're not going to have one of those Jerome Buttis and the Pittsburgh Steelers moments at the Lions Stadium. We're going to actually go heads and tails. So uh, we're going to have a draft, a little mock draft between the two of you. We're going to go four rounds, and you get to pick four wrestlers from your time frame. You're talking about the 70s, 80s to craft and manifest a super team that's going to go against each other four by four. And uh, we'll, we'll do the heads and tails thing. Who wants to call it in the air? Frank? Uh, now, go ahead, Mark. You could start. All right. Oh, I'll take heads. All right. Well, we'll flip it here, and we got a, we got tails for the record. So I guess, Frank, that means you get the first pick. But this is what you call a snake draft. So Frank's going to go first. You get to take your first uh, play. And then remind you, this is a four-by-four four match at the end of this, whatever rules you want to go. So Frank gets to pick. Mark gets to pick two guys in a row. Then Frank picks two guys in a row. Then you kind of go back and forth like that. Now, do these have to be uh – is, is Mark going to be villains and I'm going to be faces? How's this going to work? Or just any random guy we could pick out? I'm going to let Does you guys matter? choose the rules. You guys agree to the rules. Okay. What, what do you say on that, Mark? Do you want to go good guys or bad and I go bad? How, how do you want to work this out? All right. I'll take the bad guys. Okay, I'll I'll take the the faces and you take the heels, and and we're talking about just from our territory, right? Um, well, I shouldn't say territory. I guess what I meant was your era, as in the seventies, eighties. What we've been described or what we've been talking about here. Okay, and we're talking about. Okay, now we're see. You can break this down. I mean, I don't want to be hard here, but um, but are we talking about popularity? Are we talking about wrestling skill? Are we talking about Draws. What, what exactly are the criteria of this? My initial thought was going to be popularity because we were going to have a vote, but then I changed it in my mind to these characters are going to actually have a match in real life. Like that's going to be full fisticuffs. It's not going to be determined pre, a predetermined outcome. They're really going to be wrestling. Okay, so so I'm going with the good guys. Okay, and we we pick two at a time. You said right. Well, you go first, then Mark picks two, and then it goes back and forth like that. Yeah, I guess okay. it doesn't really much matter because you guys are picking opposites. So, yeah, it just Frank can, we can just go back and forth. Frank, okay. then Mark, then Frank, then Mark. I, I go first. Okay. Bruno and Bob Backlund are my first two. 
Okay, I will go with Kempatera and Ivan Koloff. Okay, so I go, um, let's see, uh, uh, faces. Um, all right, uh, hmm, I got to think about this now. Let's see. Hmm. <laughs> I got to put my thinking cap on here. Let's see. Uh, okay. Um, let's think of some good tag teams here. Um, all right. Well, popularity. Ivan Putsky. Okay. Here's another one. Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant. And Putsky? Yes. Andre the Giant and Putsky. I'll go with superstar Billy Graham, and I have to pick someone from the 80s. All the guys I picked were mainly 1970s. I'm going to go with Don Morocco, the magnificent Morocco. Yeah, he was a good worker, too. Yeah. And, Mark, maybe we could throw just the two of us in there. We could throw Ken Patera in there. Ken Patera. Has to be in there. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Ken Batera was <laughs> was a legitimate athlete, and he was a credible wrestler. Okay, and um, he, he's a, he's a pretty interesting guy because he's another guy that really made his mark in a couple of different athletic contests. He was also one of the first athletes to compete in the world's strongest man competition. That's right. He finished third in that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I think, think Wilhelm won that, right? The first one in 1977, yeah. I think Wilhelm won it maybe three, two, three years in a row. Then Kazmaier won a couple of them, too. Bill Kazmaier, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and he, he tried his hand at wrestling, but I don't think he ever did anything in, in that. But, yeah, this is another with Patera. Oh, yeah, I'm a big Patera fan. He's he's a He's quite a guy. All right, so we've got our four, we've got our matchup against each other, and and we'll go from there. Like I said, we'll let the listeners of the show determine. Real quick, who who are your four, Frank? Okay, uh, let's see: Backlund, uh, Bruno, uh, Andre, and um, oh, who's who's the third? Putsky, yeah, that's the four. Yeah. Okay, Mark. How about your four? And I'm going with Ken Patera. Ivan Koloff, superstar Billy Graham, and magnificent Morocco, Don Morocco. Okay. All right. So there we go. We'll let the listener of the show, we'll let them all vote and see who they think should come out on top. But with that being said, Mark, so any last words of wisdom? I mean, we're going to have to do a follow-up probably because there's so much content, but any last words of wisdom regarding your experience with 70s and 80s wrestling for the listener of the show? Well, it was it was just a very memorable time uh, from uh, probably a good 11, 12 years, 1974, I'd say, to around 1985, 1986. Just really good memories, uh, all the matches I went to, and really it was just quite an experience. Quite an experience and very memorable, uh, real, really fun time. 
How about you, Frank? I, I got a good story to tell in closing that I didn't mention during this. It was funny because, you know, um, my dad used to take me to a lot of the local shows. Today, it's in the Trenton area, a place like the CYO and St. Mary's would have professional wrestling. I mean, these places held, I don't know, four or 500 people at the tops, okay? And I remember this one time, um, we were going to St. Mary's which is in uh, downtown Trenton. So we're driving down South Broad Street, which is like the main drag in town. We pull up to a light, and all of a sudden, this old beat-up Cadillac pulls up next to us. And he says, uh, do you know where St. Mary's is? I said, hey, Dad, that was Dominic DiNucci was driving, and one of the Samoans was in the passenger seat. They were probably like in this old beat-up, like, mid-1960s Cadillac. And it was funny because one was a good guy and one was a bad guy. They're riding together to this show. And then um, we says, we're going there. Follow us. We'll take you right there. Okay. So that was a comical moment. And I was suspicious before. And when I seen that, I was like, wow, you know, these guys are enemies in here. They're riding... <laughs> They're riding together, you know, and a lot of these guys are friends outside for real. Yeah, how 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 often do you get to say that? Here, you're the professional. Follow me to the stadium. Yeah, and, um, my, another time, my dad was a Trenton fireman, and um, we weren't at this show one time, but he comes down. He was the captain of the shift. Some of the firemen come in. They cap. Um, there's a guy down here to see you my dad didn't know who it was and here it was bulldog brower came in the firehouse and they says oh you know the captain his son is a big wrestling fan and bulldog brower is looking for that saint mary <laughs> he come in the fire you know he didn't know where he was so he saw the firehouse there's somebody in there they'll know where to send me to so my dad talked to him for he said maybe like 10 minutes or something but he said he was surprised how sure he was Bulldog Brower. Oh, yeah, my dad directed him to the location. That, that's good. <laughs> A lot of the, uh, well, from talking to my friend, who the, the friend I had who did the photography, uh, what he told me is that most of the guys who played the villains were the, the nicest guys, you know, away from the ring. Uh, got to know superstar Billy Graham personally, and uh, he said most of the guys who played the villains were really the really the good guys in real life. It's a big <laughs> it's a big act. It's a it's like going to see it's going to like going to see a show. Yep. It's been like that for over a hundred years. They they stopped um the legitimate matches over a hundred years ago is when professional wrestling was really a legitimate sport back in those days, but nobody was interested because guys would get on the ground. They try to be securing a submission hold on each other match would last for an hour or so. So you had to really understand just like the collegiate wrestling, it's a great athletic contest, but if you don't understand the sport of what's going on, you might find it rather dull and boring. Anything else to end the show off with, or do you want me to just end it right there? Well, uh, just anybody that's living in a state or area where we, you're getting the extremely cold temperatures like all three of us are, 
just try to stay inside if you can. Stay safe. You know, we got the virus thing still going on. So uh, just take care of yourself. Try to stay indoors if you can. It's not uh, very pleasant weather out there. You could get frostbite. and Don't want anyone getting sick or getting frostbite. Yes, well said. Be happy, be healthy, and be safe. It was one for the ages, Frank. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? That's your there line. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar, Mark. All right, well, well I think that great. we... Oh, go ahead. No, it's just great talking to the two of you, and uh, really enjoyed it. And God bless everyone. There you go. Hope you enjoyed running down memory lane about pro wrestling in the 70s and 80s with Mark and Frank. If you liked this episode, be sure to let them know. You can head to the contact page on the website and send us a message directly to either one of them. Or you can even say both. Ringside with Reading, Boxing History from Yesteryear. And all of our other great podcasts on the network over at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcasts. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.